you've got a Bible then, let's turn to Paul's letter to the Romans and chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to start reading from verse 11, which comes right uh, in the, the middle of what Paul is saying, but really for the sake of, uh, of time, um, rather than kind of read the whole chapter, uh, I'll assume that you have good memories and you can remember back to when we last looked at this and you are absolutely familiar with verses 1 to 10. You are, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. So, verse 11. Again I ask, Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith, so don't be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you 
who, at one, who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience <clears throat> so that he may have mercy on them all. <clears throat> so <clears throat> that's the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. To put it in context, the context that uh, starts at the beginning here of chapter 11, Paul raises the question. He's been talking about God's wonderful sovereign love, God's choice of people before the creation of the world that has led to people being saved. And he speaks about our security in that love. We're known by God beforehand. Therefore, we can be confident that we will see God ultimately. It's all God's plan. He's sovereign. We are safe in his hands. Then he raises the question, well, what about Israel? Were they not chosen by God? And yet they've been rejected, it appears. And he deals with that. He speaks about this whole thing at the start of the chapter here, at the start of chapter 11, about the fact that all the way through, there's been a remnant that God has kept for himself because God's people will never be, as it were, extinguished. I, I use the picture of those irritating birthday cake candles that you think you've blown them out and they pop back to life again. And saying, that's how the people of God are. That's how the church is. There will come pressures. It looks like it's all over, but it never will be because God will always keep a remnant for himself that will come through. And that's the same with Israel. That's the issue he raises at the, chapter, uh, at the beginning of chapter 11. Did God reject his people? Not at all. He says, draws attention himself. Well, he said, I'm an Israelite and God has chosen me. Clearly God hasn't rejected his people, but also there will always be that surviving remnant. And then he goes on in the verses that we read from verse 11 onwards to give a great panorama of salvation history. He's got a very big picture here. Here he is living in the first century, the early days of the church, but he by revelation from God, he sees the whole extent of what God is doing. This guy is not only an apostle, he's a prophet. And here we see him bringing revelation about how the whole thing is going to end. God has shown him the extent of it all. And he's talking about the position of the Jews. Now, of course, we could say this morning, but that doesn't affect us. Okay, we may be meeting in a former synagogue, but nonetheless, it doesn't affect us. We're not Jews. But then he says uh, in verse 13, I am talking to you Gentiles. This that is about the Jews is actually important for non-Jews to understand. He says, I'm saying all this about them to you who are not Jews. It's important that we see this. Now, why? Why is it important? Well, because it's the whole extent, the, the big picture of what God is doing and what God will do. We need to know what God will do because that's our hope. That's what we fix our faith on. That's what we fix our gaze on, where the whole thing is heading. And that's the magnificent picture that Paul draws here. 
Now he speaks about the Jews and he speaks about them in verse 11, about them stumbling. They stumbled over an obstacle. He says, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all, he says. They've stumbled. And uh, back in chapter, at the end of chapter 9, he speaks about that there. In verse 32, he says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble. What was this obstacle that they stumbled over? Well, it was Jesus. This was the problem. God's remedy was actually their problem. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. The Jews are waiting for their Messiah. They're waiting for this promised hero that is going to bring salvation to them as a people. And they understand that in terms of political systems, political deliverance. They're an occupied nation, part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire extended right across the known world and encompassed Judea, and they're occupied by the Romans. This is deeply offensive to them. They're meant to be the joy of the whole earth, and instead Rome appears to be the joy of the whole earth, and they're just a captive people. But the Messiah will come. The Messiah will come and liberate them. The Messiah will come and set up a new kingdom greater than David's kingdom. He will be the son of David. He will lead an army of deliverance and Jerusalem will be the joy of the whole earth. That's their expectation. They've got prophetic promises that lead them to believe that. And then he's born in Bethlehem. Well, that's where he should be born, but in a stable And Jesus of Nazareth, the apparent son of a carpenter, and then going around speaking about turn the other cheek. Someone compels you to go one mile, go two. Wait a minute. He's meant to lead an army of deliverance, and instead he's talking about don't resist. And he, he offends them deeply. This cannot be the one they're believing for. And then he speaks about dying. He predicts he's going to die. The Messiah is meant to lead in victory and they see this apparent Messiah stumbling through the streets of Jerusalem carrying a cross. He cannot be the Messiah. But he said he was going to die. And he said he's the fulfillment of the promises. Indeed, John the Baptist looked at him and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, he's fulfilling the scriptures, but not in a way they expected. He's talking about their sin. He's addressing their need to repent. It's deeply offensive. They're a proud people. He's saying that their law, all their goodness, is not good enough for God. They need a Lamb of God who's going to take away their sin. He comes to atone. He comes as a substitute. He comes to bear the wrath of God against sin on our behalf. They couldn't accept that. This is not what they were looking for. This is so profoundly humbling. This is a different kind of kingdom. This man says, my kingdom is not of this world. He, he looks at the temple and he says, this will be destroyed. What? They stumbled. He was deeply, deeply offensive. One who justifies by faith and they're proud of their law. 
And they're proud of, 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 of the way that some of them anyway are apparently righteous before God. They couldn't accept this whole thing. They stumbled because of their preconceptions, because of their preoccupation with political issues, military issues, and so on. Their pride and basically their unbelief. It says here in verse 20 that the root cause of the whole thing was unbelief. It says they were broken off because of unbelief. They could not believe in this man who claimed to be the Savior. The result? Well, it says in verse 12, their transgression, their loss. They sinned against God and they lost everything. They lost all that could have been gained for them. If they had believed in Jesus, if they had accepted him, well, they didn't. And the relationship they could have had with God, they lost, and they lost out totally. They, and hence, verse 15, it speaks about their rejection. Rejected, set aside. Verse 17, it says, broken off. They're out of it. But, but, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Yeah, they've tripped over, but they're not out. They're effectively sidelined for a while. It says here in in verse uh, 12, it says uh, their, their transgression means riches for the world. Verse 15, their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. Because they rejected and were rejected, the message of salvation spread out. Their, Their very stumbling was actually part of God's plan so that this message of salvation would spread. We see it illustrated perfectly in the book of Acts in in Acts chapter 8. One of the key members of the early church, a young man called Stephen, has caused some trouble. He has been preaching Jesus. People have objected, and he gets stoned to death. And we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse uh, 1, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The, The Jews are rejecting this persecuting the church, and the church is scattered. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So rejection leads to the spread of the gospel. And then you get to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed. The Jews rejecting, the gospel spreading. That's the way it worked. And that's how it worked in Paul's experience in chapter 13. And verse 44, we read on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. 
and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Their rejection means reconciliation for the world. Because of them being set aside, those who are right outside begin to hear the gospel. Those who were strangers from the covenant, they had nothing to do with it all, now brought, <coughs> brought near. That is what happened, and it was all God's plan. This was what God intended. And so Paul uses an illustration, which is a bit of a strange one, really, here in Romans chapter 11. Uh, he, he leads into it by um, the words in, uh, hang on, just find back to the, the passage, uh, the, the words in, in verse 16, he says, if part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches He's referring to sacrifices and offerings under the Old Testament. If the first fruits are given to God, that belongs to God, then everything does. He's, what he's saying is, if the origin of all of this is holy, then everything else will be. That will, he'll pick that up later, but he then builds on this thing about the roots and the branches. And he says in verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Don't boast over those branches. What he's saying is, those who didn't believe are like dead branches in here an olive tree. But maybe for us, uh, maybe you, you've, you've got rose bushes in your garden. You know what it's like when you see a branch that's beginning to die off. Now, I would tend to say, well, it, it may survive. Give a pair of sacateurs to Mary, and I tell you, nothing will stop her. She cuts back right to the root. I say, that, that looks okay. Off it comes. No, it's not. It's got a bit of black spot or whatever. Anything that looks vaguely damaged, she cuts it off. Well, that's what it's talking about here. Pruning. They... The branches that don't believe, the Jews in other words, cut off. And then wild branches, that's us, grafted in. Now Paul does say this is contrary to nature, and of course it is, because normally when you graft into something, it's, uh, it's wild, a wild root that has good branches grafted into that so that uh, that, that, that it will be a good plant that grows. He's going the other way around and saying, you've got a good root and you're grafting in wild branches. Yeah, that isn't what you'd normally do, although I gather, having done a little bit of research on it, that in some cases it is actually done. But those of you who are gardeners can talk about it afterwards. You can discuss it in your core group. But not really important. The point is, we have been grafted in because they were cut off. Had they not been cut off, we would not have been grafted in. We have come in to the parent stock to the root. Abraham, a great man of faith. All the promises that are there in the Old Testament, that's the root. And hey, we're now grafted into that. We can actually share in the nourishing sap from the root. Their promises 
become our promises. Their blessings become ours. Their treasure become ours. We share in that nourishing sap. Perhaps we have to say, do we? Do we draw nourishment from that? Do we look at the Old Testament and say, that's my history. That's, that's where we have come from. That's the, the quarry we've been cut out of. There are great promises that we can take hold of. And we have come into it. Back in Isaiah, one of the parts of the parent stock that we have come into, in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, it says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I've kept. I'll make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That was always God's purpose, not just Israel but the ends of the earth. And how did that come about? Well, because they rejected and were rejected. They're cut off. We have been grafted in, and we now draw from nourishment from those roots that were their roots. They now become ours. What we need to see here is there is only one olive tree. Some people misunderstand this and they almost see two ways of salvation. One way of salvation is to be a Christian and another way of salvation is to be a Jew, as if there's a separate root for them. No, there's one olive tree, one root, one Savior, one God, and we're grafted into that and we draw nourishment from that root. Paul, of course, had frequently experienced the pain of the disappointment of preaching to his own countrymen and finding them reject. You know how it is when you've you've got good news you want to share and you you come out to friends but you're full of enthusiasm to share something and they don't want to hear. Have you ever experienced that? Oh, wait a minute. I wanted to tell you something. They want to hear. Well, that's how he felt only multiplied by hundreds. He's got this gospel, the Messiah. He knows Jesus is the Messiah. He wants to preach it in the synagogues and they throw him out. He knew what it was to be rejected. But in that disappointment and in that pain, because he's got a big picture, he sees a magnificent plan being outworked. Yeah, it's disappointing. It's tragic that they're rejecting. But actually, over it all is the overarching purpose of God because God is always in control of every detail of life and is in control of this. And he says, this is God's plan. Actually, God intended this so that the gospel goes out to the nations. Jesus had predicted that. He warned about it. He stated it. For example, in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43, he said, he said, I tell you, the kingdom of God, he's talking to his own countrymen, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. They're rejecting, he says, you're going to lose. Your loss will be their gain. It'll be taken from you and given to others. This was always God's plan. When the Jews rejected their Messiah, crucified him, Peter, after the event, is able to say, it was your wickedness that did it, but it was God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Acts 2, 23, God is in control, even of this tragedy, because it's the way of bringing salvation 
to the world. So Israel had to be sidelined for the nations to hear. We are in the blessing that we're in this morning. We are in salvation because of this big plan of God. And of course, it's always happened since, it's frequently happened since then, that when persecution comes, it's a way of the gospel spreading. Think of how the gospel is spreading rampantly in China, a nation where the church has been cruelly persecuted. Persecution often causes the gospel to spread. And Paul is seeing that and says that's part of God's big plan. Their loss is very much our gain. And we've gained riches because they lost out. Their transgression means riches for the world. Their loss means riches for the Gentiles, verse 12. We've gained riches. I hope we appreciate the riches that we've gained. Peace with God. Sin dealt with. A, a perfect substitute who deals not with just part of our sin, but all of it. We've got peace with God, assurance of salvation forever, riches. And we've got the Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit of this Savior comes to us so that we can read the Scripture. And there's riches there. It's not a closed book to us anymore. God opens our eyes. Hey, it's riches. We delight in Him. There's always more. Always more to get out of this book. Always more to know about God. Riches for the world. We've come into that. And Paul says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. He says, I want you to understand this. This is what has happened. And he also says, I want you to understand, God didn't spare the natural branches. He won't spare you also. They treated as a light thing what God was doing. They rejected it. Hey, Paul says, there's a warning there. Consider the kindness and sternness of God. But we have come into riches. They are cut off, but not rejected. You see, verse 1 Paul says, did God reject his people? Not at all. And then, verse 15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, you think, Paul, are you contradicting yourself? Did God reject his people? No. Then he goes on to say, and because they've been rejected, the world is reconciled. Seems a bit strange. No, the point is, they have been sidelined for a while. They're not rejected. Apparently, yes, but only temporarily sidelined, and it is temporary. And so he says in verse 11, their transgre- because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's what we've been seeing. Then he says, to make Israel envious. They have rejected their Messiah. They don't accept he is the Messiah. They still don't accept that he is the Messiah. When we took over this building, uh, before we redecorated and so on, there was a notice board downstairs, and there was a little handbill on it. And on the handbill, because uh, the Jews only moved out the week before we came in, there was a handbill about looking for the Messiah to come. He's come for them, still waiting. He's not yet come. They've rejected. They're waiting for the Messiah. We know him. 
We're celebrating Him this morning. We're enjoying Him this morning. We're shouting His praise here this morning. Okay, a bit muted, but you know, the, the Spirit is willing. Flesh is weak. But we know the Messiah. They don't. The object is they see us enjoying their Messiah while they've missed him. They think, hey, this isn't right. And envy should be promoted. It's to make Israel envious, of course. Sadly, tragically, far from the church provoking Israel to envy, the church historically has treated Israel with contempt, treated Jews with contempt, cruelly treated Jews. You read some church history and see how Jews have been persecuted by Christians. Hey, this is tragic. It's the opposite of what should be happening. What should be happening is that Jews see us enjoying what they should have enjoyed. And they begin to recognize they should have had this and we've got it. And envy will cause a reaction and a response. They need to see what they have been missing. They need to see that they can come back in. Verse 12, their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, then how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Their loss led to great expansion, great blessing. Now Paul says, he uses this phrase that he uses many times in the book of Romans, how much more? Their loss means riches for us. Then how much more will the opposite of their loss mean? And he uses this word fullness. Fullness is the opposite of loss. It's hard to translate. But if you imagine if you had a, uh, maybe a beaker full of, uh, of drink and there's a, a crack or something in the beaker and all the drink disappears. Loss is empty. Fullness is when it's full again. They've lost everything. Hey, but it can be filled again. They're losing means riches for the world. Well, Paul said, how much more will their fullness, this situation can be reversed. And what Paul is, goes on to say is, it will be reversed. And so he speaks of future hope. He speaks of their fullness. In verse 15, he says, their rejection by God is the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance by God be but life from the dead? When they're rejected, look what happened. Well, then when that is reversed, when they're accepted back in, what will that mean? When you think, how many millions of people have been saved around the world and are being saved now around the world because of their rejection, then what will be the outcome of their inclusion, their acceptance? Paul sees something is going to happen. This is not a permanent situation. This is a temporary situation. They're sidelined for a season, but a day will come. He sees 
them coming back. He says, makes this great statement in verse 26, much debated in commentaries and so on. In verse 26, and so, he says, all Israel will be saved. Without going into all the possible understandings of this, I'll just give you one, and you can look up the others if you want to. But surely, well, what I take it, Paul is saying here, a day will come, not when every single Jew, wherever they are around the world, will become a Christian, but there will be, effectively, it will look as if all Israel has been saved. All Israel rejected? Well, no, not all Israel, actually, because Paul himself, he says, He's been saved, and he knows many other Jews had been saved. So, but effectively, it's Israel had been sidelined. Yeah, but not everyone. Then a day will come when effectively all Israel will be saved. Maybe not everyone, but a great ingathering of those who originally had the promises, rejected and were rejected, and are outside still. Ones and twos being saved, of course, Jews being saved. But effectively... They're still outside. But a day will come when all Israel will be saved. When will that be? He says, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Israel has experienced a hardening in part, verse 25, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, when all those from the nations who should be saved... In every nation, out of every people group, every language group, when all those who should be saved have been saved, when the full number has come in, then Israel will come back in. The, the people who rejected their Messiah will finally accept him. There's not an alternative route of salvation. God will have mercy on them all. Verse 32, it's always mercy. It's always grace. And grace comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. But a day will come. Paul can see, he's, as I say, not just an apostle, he's a prophet. And he sees the full number of the Gentiles. He could not possibly know how many nations there were in the world. But he, he sees the full number will come in. Because he's got the promises there in the Old Testament. And when that happens, he's got revelation. Then Israel will be grafted back in. And he said, if you, contrary to nature, have been grafted in, then it's much more easy for them to come back in. And he's saying, they will. The nation who rejected their Messiah will turn on a massive scale and come back in. Now that's our hope. You see, there are those who predict continued decline for the church and really when Jesus comes back it's like just in the nick of time to save the church from total extinction. There are those who see that kind of gloomy prospect. Paul sees a very different picture. He sees something massive, something global. Now, of course, that doesn't preclude the possibility of terrible darkness, terrible persecution. Yes, the Bible speaks about that. Great darkness covering the earth, but light rising upon God's people. And in that situation of turmoil and catastrophe, and who knows what might be happening, in that, the full number of the Gentiles coming in, and that triggering a kind of landslide 
among Jews and in vast numbers turning back and acknowledging Jesus is the Messiah. And so the glorious plan will be fulfilled. Paul sees the whole picture, which causes him to launch into words that I didn't read, but we'll look at them another week. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's got the whole thing sewn up because he's planned it all. And the future is dark and glorious. Yes, there will be The Bible speaks of the catastrophes and wars and rumors of wars and so on. But for the church, for the people of God, massive inclusion and massive growth. That prospect, this passage here in Romans 11, has always been the grounds for believing that God hasn't finished with the church. And we don't look for continued decline and failure, but rather glorious prospects of revival, of God's Spirit moving on a wide scale, the full number coming in. Yes, nothing can stop the purpose of God. The full number out of the Muslim world, out of the Hindu world, out of the Buddhist world, wherever the full number of those who are appointed for salvation will come in. No political system, no military system can prevent the spread of the Word of God. It never has done. The church of God will march on, and a glorious day will come, as we've said, when it will trigger something unprecedented. All Israel will be saved. The apostles saw this. God brought revelation to them. Peter, on the, after the day of Pentecost, is speaking of times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And then Jesus will come. He's coming back for a glorious church. And there won't be any loose ends. There won't be any promises that have failed to be fulfilled. The whole thing, all that he promised to his people, yes, temporarily sidelined, but they're coming back. But the, the nation's coming in, and that's where we come in. God has saved us because of the tragedy of Israel. But that tragedy will be wonderfully, wonderfully reversed. And so, there's motivation here to preach the gospel. There is motivation here to go to the nations. There is motivation to say the gospel must inevitably succeed. It cannot fail. God is involved in this. This is God's plan. There's motivation here also, of course, for self-examination. They were broken off because of unbelief. You stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but fear. God didn't spare the natural branches. He won't spare you. Hey, am I valuing this salvation? Am I pressing on in faith? Am I believing in Jesus actively? Am I sharing in the nourishing sap from the olive, olive root? Does this bless me or have I become kind of cold? They became cold. They didn't appreciate the Messiah when he came. Cut off. Hey, consider the kindness and sternness of God. We need to make sure we're pressing through. But there's motivation here also to pray and seek God and to pray with faith for the success of his work in every nation. 
to pray for the success of his work where the church is being persecuted, that that persecution will lead to expansion as it historically always has done. Let's pray for the full number of the Gentiles to come in so that, hey, maybe even in our lifetime we see this happening. It's going to happen sometime. could be in our day that we live to see what Paul sees in the distant future, that we live to see that happening. Final thing, motivation to make sure we're included, to make sure we are in Christ, that we are part of that full number. How tragic to be rejected, to be outside. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him as your savior? Do you know he's dealt with your sin? Are you sure you know him and he knows you? There's only one way of salvation, only ever has been. Are you in him, living by faith, deriving blessing from saying, hey, this is riches. If you're outside, God can draw you in. Let's pray.